Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. The paper is by Professor Eamon Duffy and is entitled Durham 1569, A People's Tragedy? At four o'clock in the afternoon of November the 14th, 1569, a party of 60 or so armoured horsemen carrying spears, arquebuses and knives rode the five miles from the Earl of Westmoreland's stronghold at Branspath, trooped up the bailey to Palace Green and entered the cathedral. They were led by the two premier noblemen of the north of England, Charles, Earl of Westmoreland, and Thomas, Earl of Northumberland, and they included some of the leading gentry of Durham and Yorkshire. Inside the cathedral, they gathered up the English service books and Bibles and tore them into pieces. They then broke in pieces the communion table. Then they assembled the citizens on Palace Green and in the name of the Queen forbade the celebration of any Protestant services in the cathedral or the town churches. And they set up a watch committee of 24 men to enforce this prohibition. By nightfall, the earls were gone on their way towards Richmond via Darlington to raise Yorkshire against the Elizabethan religious settlement. This carefully staged incident inaugurated the last serious rebellion against the Tudor crown. Badly planned by an ill-assorted consortium of northern nobles and gentry, whose leaky conspiracy was soon well known to the government, the revolt was triggered prematurely when Elizabeth summoned the two earls to court to explain themselves. The rebellion was to prove both short-lived and futile. There was no coherent plan of campaign. The hope for support from Mary's allies in Scotland and from the men of Lancashire and Cheshire failed to materialise, and although over a thousand of the rebels came from the region round Richmond, the Earls lingered too long there, attempting to raise the rest of the North Riding. And crucially, they failed to liberate Mary, Queen of Scots, whom the regime hastily moved south under guard to Coventry to prevent the Earls reaching her. They would also seize and occupy Hartlepool, to provide a base for a hoped-for Spanish expeditionary force. But like so many other of the rebels' expectations, no such force ever materialised or indeed was planned. It used to be thought that the bulk of this rebel army consisted of clients and tenants of the two earls, more or less reluctantly supporting their lords 
But in fact, a recent analysis of the rebel army showed that fewer than 20% of them had any direct link to any of the rebel leaders. In Richmond, where enthusiasm for the rebellion was strong, 16 of the 48 known rebels were in fact members of the town oligarchy, substantial independent members of the community who'd served as aldermen, bailiffs, or school governors. The leader of the royalist forces in Durham, that's opposing the rebels, was the Lord Lieutenant, Sir George Bowes. He at first claimed that plebeian support for the earls was either bought or coerced. First, he wrote by fair speech, and after by offers of money, and last by threats of burning and spoiling. He reported that when one of the rebel gentry, John Swinburne, caused mass to be celebrated at Darlington on November the 16th, he, with a staff, drove before him the poor folks to hasten them to hear the same. But it was soon obvious that Bose was deceiving himself and radically underestimating popular sympathy for the rebellion. Few of the rebels needed coercion. And by late November, Bose was reporting that daily the people flee from these parts to the rebels. The president of the Council of the North, the Earl of Sussex, cooped up in York in a county uh, full of rebel sympathisers, told William Cecil on November the 20th, he is a rare bird that by one means or another hath not some of his with the two earls, or in his heart wisheth not well to the cause they pretend. Sir Rafe Sadler, another member of the Council of the North, told Cecil, there are not ten gentlemen in this country that favour the Queen's proceedings in the cause of religion, while the common people are ignorant, superstitious, and altogether blinded with the old popish doctrine, and therefore so favour the cause which the rebels make the colour of their rebellion, that though their persons be here with us, their hearts are with them. Bose learnt this lesson the hard way in December, besieged by the rebel forces in Barnard's castle in early December, and with supplies of food and drink failing, his own troops, as he reported, did daily by great numbers leap over the walls to go to the rebels. The mutiny grew, and in a single day, the first Saturday in December, 226 of Bow's men leapt over the walls and opened the gates and went to the enemy. 35 of them broke their necks, legs or arms in the process. But Bose was forced to surrender the castle and, to his amazement, was granted safe conduct for himself and his 400 remaining troops. Another example of the incompetence of the rebels. Despite all that, almost exactly one month after its outbreak, the rebel army which at its height had numbered at least 6,000 men, between 1,500 and 2,000 of them mounted, gentlemen and yeomen, comparatively well armed, was melting away in confusion, and the earls themselves were in retreat 
first towards Hexham and then on to Scotland, seeking in vain for support from Mary's allies there. There had been very few fatalities during the rebellion itself. Most of the damage had been to property. But its collapse was followed by the most savage reprisals of even that bloody Tudor century. As Provost Marshal, Bowes oversaw summary executions under martial law in every town and village in Yorkshire and Durham which had supplied any men, money or moral support and comfort to the rebel cause. The Earl of Sussex avenging troops looted their way northwards, impounding horses, slaughtering cattle, plundering barns and storerooms, and leaving the region to face the worst of a bitterly snowbound winter, stripped of cash, food, and animal fodder. In all, somewhere in the region of 7,000 men, most of them small yeomen, artisans, or farm workers or labourers, were hanged and some bodies were left to rot on the gallows at every execution site as a reminder of the cost of rebellion. <coughs> the earls themselves never returned home. Westmoreland escaped to, to the Spanish Netherlands and to a hand-to-mouth existence as an impoverished soldier of fortune and a Spanish pensioner. Northumberland ended up in the custody of James Douglas, Earl of Morton, who was later the regent of Scotland, who sold him to the English government for £2,000. He was executed without trial on the pavement at York in August 1572. Till fairly recently, historians have been inclined to explain the rebellion in essentially secular terms, as the last gasp of northern feudalism, an attempt by northern grandees resentful of their exclusion from the corridors of power and of the domination of Elizabethan politics by upstart new men like William Cecil to mobilize their tenants and clients against Elizabeth and replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, having fled Scotland, was by the autumn of 1569 a prisoner under close guard in Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire. In Catholic eyes, she was not only the rightful heir, uh, the successor to Elizabeth, but she had a much better claim to the throne. Unlike Elizabeth, she was neither a bastard nor a heretic. She was indeed central to the conspiracy, though the earls didn't in fact agree on what they wanted from her. Westmoreland was brother-in-law to the Duke of Norfolk, and an ardent supporter of a proposed marriage between the Duke and Mary. But Norfolk, who was a very devout Catholic, uh, sorry, uh, Norfolk was a Protestant, and Northumberland, who was a devout Catholic, distrusted him almost as much as Elizabeth did. Rather unrealistically, Northumberland favoured a marriage between Mary and King Philip of Spain, which was never going to happen but he thought it would ensure a Catholic succession reminiscent of the glory days of good Queen Mary. Known to English history as Bloody Mary. It's now increasingly accepted, though, that the desire to restore Catholicism was the most important single motive for the rebels. 
The earls themselves spelt that out in their first proclamation uh, on the day after the seizure of Durham Cathedral. Having protested that they intended no harm to the Queen, they must have been crossing their fingers, they declared that for as much as the order of things in the church and matters of religion are presently set forth and used contrary to the ancient Catholic faith, therefore their purposes and meanings are to reduce all the said causes in religion to the ancient customs and usages before used, wherein they desire all good people to take their parts. And subsequent proclamations, uh, to begin with they were issuing them almost daily, reiterated the claim of the rebellion to amend and redress the triumph of a newfound religion and heresy contrary to God's word. Now that was a very powerful appeal in northern England in the late 1560s where the Elizabethan church had very few enthusiasts and where traditional religious attitudes and practices were either winked at or positively encouraged by many of the parish clergy, most of whom, of course, were Catholic priests who had served in Mary's church. The Diocese of Durham had been ruled till 1559 by Cuthbert Tunstall, a Henrician conformist, but formerly the friend of Erasmus, Moore and Fisher. And despite his acceptance of the royal supremacy, Tunstall's deep-seated Catholic convictions ensured that Protestantism had made very few inroads in the diocese. Under Edward VI, of course, those same convictions led to his imprisonment and the suppression of the bishopric itself. Reinstated during Mary's reign, Tunstall came to uh, renounce the royal supremacy as an instrument of heresy and to Elizabeth's dismay, he refused conformity to her religious settlement, thereby depriving her of a much-needed symbol of continuity and legitimacy. But Tunstall's deprivation and then death in 1559 meant that he could be replaced. And he was replaced by a vehement Protestant activist, James Pilkington, while the new dean of the cathedral, William Whittingham, was even more radical, a Puritan who, like Pilkington, had fled to the continent in Mary's reign, had become one of the principal translators of the Geneva Bible and had been ordained by Calvin. He, in fact, never received Episcopal ordination. Bishop and Dean set about turning the cathedral and the diocese into Protestant strongholds. Durham was unique in having a Protestant chapter in the uh, 1560s, I mean a really radical Protestant chapter. He imported committed reformers like the brothers Thomas and Rafe Lever, both of them also uh, exiles in Zurich under Mary, to replace ousted conservative prebendaries, many of whom had been former monks. A handful of former monks did survive among the 12 prebendaries into the 1560s, but throughout the, that decade, a rigorous Protestant regime was increasingly enforced in the cathedral with fast days, lectures, as well as the, the Protestant services. Pilkington and Whittingham's campaign extended into the diocese, 
Many of the new cathedral clergy also held key parish appointments and made regular preaching circuits round the other parishes where their abrasive reforming zeal often antagonised. In the cathedral itself, Whittingham's conspicuous campaign against superstition caused outrage, as perhaps it was meant to. In addition to smashing a lot of stained glass and defacing a venerated statue of St Cuthbert, he removed the two fine white marble water, holy water stoops from the cathedral and redeployed them for soaking vegetables and washing pots in his kitchen. His French wife, as a conservative contemporary lamented, in the notable contempt and disgrace of all ancient and godly relics, was reputed to have supervised the burning of St. Cuthbert's Banner, an ancient battle standard that was one of the most revered local treasures. In fact, she probably didn't, but that's another story. But lamentations over such attacks on ancient pieties cut no ice with the dean, the bishop, or their supporters. Our poor papists weep to see our churches so bare, Bishop Pilkington gleefully reported, since there is nothing in them to make curtsy to, neither saints nor yet their little old God. Bishops of Durham had often been drafted in from outside the region to act as a counterweight for the crown against the entrenched power of great local landlords like the earls. By contrast, the monastic cathedral had been deeply embedded in Durham society, most of its monks being drawn from middle-ranking local families. And those involvements ensured that the cathedral had been perceived as a relatively benign landlord and employer. But the new Protestant prebendaries were almost all drawn from outside the region, and they were of a higher social status than most of the monks and than the first generation of the chapter. They were also married, eager to provide for their families by maximising the cathedral revenues, just as Bishop Pilkington was eager to protect the temporalities of his see and to exploit valuable local resources like the coal mines. In the mid-1560s, therefore, the bishop and the Protestant prebendaries were frequently involved in acrimonious lawsuits against tenants who'd fallen into arrears or against other local vested interests, including those of the Earl of Westmoreland. Inevitably, that cocktail of abrasive attacks on ancient piety, combined with financial hawkishness, proved toxic, deepening resistance to the new religion. A revealing example of the resulting animosities flared up at Sedgefield in November 1567, two years before the rebellion. The vicar of Sedgefield was Robert Swift, an ardently Protestant Chancellor of the Diocese. He'd been brought in by Pilkington, and like Dean Whittingham, a man who refused to wear the surplice in services, he was one of the bishop's hand-picked team of zealous reformers parachuted into this highly conservative community to promote the Reformation. Unsurprisingly, Swift encountered resistance. In 1562, Bishop Pilkington ordered that all communion tables should be removed from the chancels to avoid association with the altars on which the sacrifice of the Mass had been offered 
and placed instead in the body of the church, uh, in the aisles essentially, facing east and west, up and down the church, not north and south across the church, as the altars had been. Like many conservative parishes, Sedgefield ignored this directive. So it wasn't until September 1567 that Swift himself oversaw the removal of the table into the nave and placed round it certain forms or desks for the communicants. That was to consolidate its presence there. The parish was not cooperative. On November the 7th, the Sedgefield church wardens, after divers' contemptuous words, did forcibly, contemptuously and rashly take up and remove the said table, forms and desks. And they denounced their vicar as a hinderer and no furtherer of God's service. There were similar confrontations elsewhere in 1567 and 1568, most notorious of them at Barnard's Castle, where the four church wardens, with the backing of the town bailiff and members of the town council, protested against their radical Protestant vicar, Thomas Clark, by barricading themselves into the church on a Saturday evening so that morning services could not be held on the Sunday. The wardens ended up being hauled into the assize court, but the bailiff, Thomas Rowlandson, continued their campaign by presenting the vicar before the High Commission in York as a Puritan. And Pilkington was, was forced to defuse the situation by moving Clark to Berwick. In opposing and denouncing Swift, the Sedgefield Wardens undoubtedly spoke for most of the parish. Opposition to their vicar would rumble on, and in the following year, the parish witnessed a series of confrontations provoked by a conservative parishioner, a gentleman, Brian Hedlam, who showed his contempt for the new worship by talking loudly during services, abusing the curate, and refusing to remove his hat. <laughs> the wardens probably shared his views, but they attempted to fine him for these public offences. And on his refusal, one of them, Thomas Watkin, presented him in the diocesan court, which was, of course, presided over by the vicar, um, Robert Swift, uh, as chancellor. But all this was probably the manifestation of a family falling out, not a sign of a parish divided between Catholic and Protestant. Watkin and Hedlam were, in fact, brothers-in-law. They'd married a pair of sisters, and Hedlam reproached Watkin for a breach of parish solidarity in acting against him. You have done to me as never was done to any of Sedgefield Parish, for ever one of us has borne with another. Another of Hedlam's accusers was the other churchwarden, Roland Hickson. But as we shall see, he was a Catholic, and despite their apparent differences, all three men joined the rebellion. Hickson and Hedlam would jointly play the most prominent roles in the destruction of Protestant books and the restoration of the mass in Sedgefield, along with more than 50 other parishioners who eventually had to sue for clemency for their part in the rebellion. Inevitably, once the rebellion broke out, conspicuously active Protestant clergy like Swift most of whom wisely fled south to safety at the first rumour of rebellion, 
They were the immediate and obvious targets. Bernard Gilpin, the most famous clergyman in the diocese, left his golden rectory at Horton for refuge in Oxford. He returned in late December to find that the rebels had made waste of all, selling the corn, consuming the fatted ware, and basely making havoc of all those things which Mr. Gilpin had provided for pious and honest uses. And that pattern of destruction and plunder was repeated wherever reformers had made themselves obnoxious. In Durham, Dean Whittingham's house, library and barns were robbed and gutted. The houses and property of Protestant gentry through the county were similarly targets. And with greater symbolic resonance, the public destruction of emblems of the Elizabethan religious settlement, begun by the earls in the cathedral, was from the outset a crucial part of the theatre of rebellion. As Bowes reported to Cecil just five days into the rebellion, these earls hath and doth everywhere burn the service books and Bible and break the communion tables. The destruction of Protestant service books and communion tables was enforced wherever the revolt spread. And some of those involved in the destruction may have been reluctant. Robert Gilson, church warden of St. Giles in Durham, claimed that the parish clerk of St. Giles had come to him and told him the church books had been burnt at the other city churches, St. Nicholas and St. Oswald's, and that they should bring their books out for burning, or else our houses will be ripped. But there's abundant evidence of local officials and cooperative parishioners who needed neither threat nor urging. A crowd of 40 St. Giles parishioners gathered outside Gilson's door to watch the Book of Common Prayer, the Bible, the homilies, the metrical psalters, and Bishop Jewell's apology all go up in smoke. At Sedgefield, Brian Headlam, who we already met, uh, refusing to take his hat off and abusing the curate, ordered the church warden Roland Hickson, again whom we've met, to send up the church books that I might burn the books before I go to Darlington. Hickson later claimed that he'd been constrained by orders given in the Queen's name and the Earl's. But several parishioners testified that his tongue was the highest at the burning and that while the books were burning before a crowd at the cross by the town gate, Hickson had poked the flames with his staff, declaring, See where the homilies flee to the devil. Some of the women of the parish claimed that they tried to rescue the Bible from the bonfire, but the said Roland would not let them have any, but he scattered the pages with his staff, and some of the women gathered up stray pages for their children to play with. Alongside the destruction of the equipment of Protestant worship went the restoration of the ritual furniture of Catholicism. Now there's an issue about timing here. Most accounts of the rebellion state or imply that the earls restored the mass in the cathedral on November the 14th and that the restoration of Catholic worship in the parishes followed soon after. Mass was undoubtedly celebrated in Darlington on November the 16th, and perhaps elsewhere. But the subsequent prosecutions of Durham Cathedral officials, 
and of church wardens and parishioners uh, through the diocese and the city for participation in Catholic worship all relate to incidents alleged to have taken place between November the 30th and December the 14th. Now December the 30th was of course St Andrew's Day and it was a date laden with special significance for the restoration of Catholicism because it was on St. Andrew's Day, 1554, just 15 years earlier, that Cardinal Poole had solemnly reconciled the whole kingdom to the Holy See by absolving Parliament and the nation from the sin of schism. And Poole's Legatine Synod had established the 30th of November for an annual commemoration of the return of England to obedience to the Holy See. So the date is a very charged one. And in any case, for most of the last two weeks of November, that is for the first two weeks of the revolt, the rebel forces have been mainly in Yorkshire. But on November the 30th, Rafe Sadler reported that the rebels are returned into the bishopric. So it was from this point onwards that Catholic observance in the city and the wider diocese began to be rigorously enforced. The moving spirit here in Durham seems to have been Cuthbert Neville, who was uh, one of the uncles of the Earl of Westmoreland. Um, he, was, he lived at Brownspath, where the, the Earl had a, a castle. And he was assisted by a priest, William Holmes, who orchestrated a campaign of re-Catholicising from Palace Green. They, they uh, billeted themselves in the castle. None of the local clergy were, of course, permitted to say Mass, since all were excommunicated schismatics by virtue of having conformed to the Elizabethan settlement. The St. Andrew's Day Mass in the cathedral was therefore celebrated by one of the Earl's priests, Robert Pearson, who was one of four clergy in the Earl's entourage, uh, who between them seemed to have presided at all the Masses in the cathedral. In the days that followed, the Catholic choir offices, matins and vespers and the rest, were revived in the cathedral, in which some of the prebendaries, most notably the ex-monk George Cliff, participated, along with the choir and the minor canons. The Earl of Northumberland returned to Durham on Saturday, December the 3rd, and on the Sunday morning, high mass was sung in the cathedral before an immense crowd Holmes had faculties to absolve from the sin of schism. I think he must have gotten from Nicholas Morton, the papal emissary who'd liaised with the earls. He preached a sermon against the Elizabethan settlement, reminded the congregation that they'd all been living in schism for 11 years, commanded anyone who did not wish to be reconciled to the Holy See to leave the cathedral, a few did, and he ordered the remaining congregation, which seems to have been almost everyone, to kneel. He then solemnly absolved them in Latin from the sin of schism in the name of Pope Pius V. This absolution did not, however, enable the local clergy to resume their ministry. Another of the priests accompanying the earl, Sir John Pearson, told a group of the minor canons who'd been present and had knelt to receive absolution with the rest that they could enjoy no living nor do any service till they all been individually reconciled. They 
had to go to confession. They, were therefore, they therefore sought out Holmes, who by this time was based at Stainjob, perhaps at Raby Castle, I'm not sure about that, uh, where they repudiated the Elizabethan settlement and made a formal submission to the Catholic Church. Holmes was then, uh, quote, content to admit them as deacons to administer in the church, but not to celebrate. The rest of the minor canons were required to go through the same process of individual renunciation of schism and formal reconciliation, as were all the clergy of the town churches. And the process wasn't always straightforward. Oliver Ashe, who was the curate at St. Giles, had evidently once been a monk, and in addition to the sin of schism in ministering heretical rites, he was technically an apostate from religious life, a sin whose absolution was reserved to the Holy See. When he approached Holmes for reconciliation and authority to resume his ministry at St. Giles, Holmes, who presumably uh, received limited faculties, told him that for as much as this examinate has been a religious man, he could not absolve him saying that he was excommunicate, and so should be for him until he had further authority. Some of the Durham City clergy later admitted to having officiated at the Latin daily offices and in minor sacramental rites, like the blessing of holy water and holy bread, but none of them seemed to have been allowed to celebrate Mass. All the Durham Masses mentioned in the later court proceedings were celebrated by priests from the rebel entourage. So here, counter-reformation rigor came face to face with a more malleable traditionalism, a reminder that the rebellion itself was a manifestation of a newly militant Catholicism informed by counter-reformation political ideology. Northumberland himself had been reconciled to the church in 1567 by an itinerant priest named Copley, one of a group of Marian clergy who had refused conformity but who remained at large in the region attempting to convert traditionalists from timid conformity to open recusancy, much as William Allen had been doing for the last few years in the Fylde in Lancashire. Copley was one of the priests uh, who provided the Earls, the Nevilles, the Nortons, John Swinburne and the other rebel gentry with theological input on the question of whether or not Elizabeth was in fact excommunicate and therefore could be resisted. And it may have been Copley who introduced the Earl to the counter-reformation treatises by Louvain theologians like Thomas Harding, Nicholas Sander and Thomas Stapleton which had helped to harden Northumberland's uh, resolve. As a result of these consultations, the earls did petition Pius V to excommunicate Elizabeth, but of course by the time he did it, the rebellion had come and gone, and the corpses of those who'd rallied to the earl's standard were already food for crows. Most of the clergy reconciled by Holmes would conform again in the face of the savage retribution that followed the collapse of the rebellion. But for some, perhaps for most, at the time the absolution from schism must have seemed a watershed moment. One of the minor canons of the cathedral who went to Stainjob to seek absolution from William Holmes was a priest called Sir John Brown. Priests were called Sir like they're called Father now. 
who was also the curate of Witten Gilbert. Is it Witten Gilbert or Witten Gilbert? Gilbert. In the first flush of his reconciliation, Brown burnt his boats by telling the parish that although whenever he'd used the prayer book and the homilies, he had left forth anything that he thought might harm them, nevertheless, I have this eleven years taught you the wrong way in such learning as is against my soul and yours both, and I am sorry, and ask God's mercy therefore, and you my parishioners, and do here renounce my living before you all, and wherever you meet me, in town or field, take me for a stranger, and none of your curate. The full extent of lay enthusiasm for the restoration of Catholicism is hard to assess because the direct evidence comes from testimony given in the Anglican Church courts after the suppression of the rebellion when everyone concerned was eager to protest that they'd acted under duress. And coercion there certainly was. Robert Hutchison, a, a slater, uh, was one of the Masons who set up the two altars uh, for the Mass in Durham Cathedral. He testified circumstantially that he'd done so at the commandment of Mr. Cuthbert Neville, which sent for Henry Younger and this examinate, that's himself, to the castle and kept them there in a dungeon because they refused to deal or meddle with the setting up of any altars and for that he threatened them still to continue them there. The said Robert and Henry did at last consent and Younger, the other mason, likewise testified that what he, they'd done was sore against his will and only after they had been in prison fast in the castle two days, one night, and the labourers who helped them gave rather similar testimony. So it's quite clear that some of the people uh, acting uh, did so reluctantly. In the other city churches, Compliance uh, in the restoration of the altars and so on was overseen by the city's alderman, by the mayor. But even those like Hutchison, doubtful about the short-lived restoration, might nevertheless display strong conservative religious sympathies. On December the 6th, William Watson, who was the parish clerk of St. Nicholas's, was summoned by four of the Earl's men to help with the funeral of Hans Fossen, a German goldsmith who'd settled in Durham, one of the leading citizens. When he arrived at the church, William Holmes was preparing to celebrate the Requiem Mass. Holmes asked Watson if he'd been reconciled, or would be, or no. And Watson refused because, he said, it was against his conscience and the Queen's laws. But as he himself admitted, he then tarried mass there and helped the said Holmes on with his mass clothes and bowed down there on his knees and took holy water. Watson insisted that he did it for fear, but the same mixture of hesitancy about committing to the Catholic Restoration, combined with participation in Catholic rites, carried the behaviour of the vicar of St. Nicholas, William Hedlam, coming to church on Saturday, December the 10th, he found one of the Earl's clergy, Sir Robert Pearson, saying Mass, whereat he was not contented and tarried not, but went his ways. Hedlam insisted that he attended none of the other Masses. 
Yet he also admitted to having himself blessed holy water and holy bread, having read the lessons in Latin at matins and vespers, and eventually, after much persuasion, to being reconciled by homes. And there's abundant evidence of the positive enthusiasm of many of those involved in dismantling the paraphernalia of Protestant worship and restoring that of the Mass. At Auckland St. Helen, William Cook, a labourer who'd been in the rebel army, strove with other soldiers about the tearing of the books, whereof he tear part of them with his hands and teeth. At Sedgefield, where Brian Hedlam had ordered the reconstruction of the altar, the whole parish met together and consulted to fetch in the altar stone and the holy water stone. The high altar mensa, that's the slab on the top with the five crosses in it, uh, had been hidden in a local field in 1559. The field was called Gibson's Garth. And a crowd of parishioners, variously reported as numbering 30 or 80, but at any rate a lot of them, harnessed themselves with ropes in pairs to drag the stone from its hiding place to the church and to help set up the altar again. And William, women as well as men were involved there and in several other parishes. In fact, in a lot of other parishes, women would be prosecuted for having carried bags of sand, clay or lime to help rebuild the altars. Every parish had also been ordered by the earls to replace the holy water stoops, and this seems to have been particularly popular. Almost everywhere, they too had been hidden at the enforcement of the settlement rather than destroyed, and once again, support for their restoration was widespread. Most of those questioned in the church courts in 1570 confessed to having taken holy water when the stones went up again, like the crowds at St. Oswald's and St. Giles here in the city, who gathered when the holy water stoops was restored, and there was water put in the stone wherewith the folk sprinkled themselves. Holy water wasn't the only sacramental which reappeared in December 1569. Praying with rosary beads became another open mark of complicity. Thomas Wainman, a yeoman who'd sold and carried eightpence worth of stone to St. Margaret's to rebuild the altar, where he was promised there would be mass next morning, was obviously not a mere mercenary. He wasn't just there to sell stone. He confessed to having occupied ten gaudies, that is beads, in the church, and to have eaten a piece of blessed bread given him by a neighbour, which he now remembers was his own wife. <laughs> Elizabeth Watson came to the cathedral to hear the Mass on St Andrew's Day, but the throng of people was so much that she could not, and so she sat down in the low end of the same church and said her prayers. She saith she used her beads. Agnes Nixon was at the same Mass, by the commandment of the officers, she claimed. But if that was meant to imply reluctance, her actions belied her, for she too used her beads. And she evidently prized them, because in March 1570, when she was in deep trouble in Robert Swift's unsympathetic court, she reported that she hath her beads still. They are of coral. But she uses them not. 
Alice Wilkinson, a 36-year-old widow, confessed that she had attended Mass at St. Nicholas's here in Durham and willingly used such reverence unto, and she had also occupied her gourds, her beads, as many thousand did. Most of the population of Durham seemed to have attended the Mass in the Cathedral on St. Andrew's Day and the Mass on the following Sunday when William Holmes solemnly absolved the whole congregation from the sin of schism. And although the ex-monk George Cliff was the only prebendary known to have attended, almost all the minor canons and all the lay clerks were present on both occasions and most of them took part in the Latin choir offices, masses and processions celebrated in the cathedral in the two weeks that followed. Inevitably, after the collapse of the rebellion, they would all claim to have acted under compulsion, claiming that when Holmes pronounced absolution, either they could not hear him, he had so small a voice, or because of the great press of the people, and they only knelt because they thought he was reciting a prayer. But we have to take these protestations with a pinch of salt. One of the minor canons present on that occasion was the ex-religious Oliver Ash, the um, curate at St. Nicholas, whom Holmes had refused absolution. He was in the cathedral to hear Holmes preach and celebrate Mass on Sunday the 4th of December. And when the bell rang at the consecration, Ash craned his head towards the altar in order to see the elevation of the host, a sure sign of his Catholic convictions. But he was too far away to be able to see it. So instead, he looked up into the choir loft, where the cathedral organist, John Brimley, was in charge of the choir, and he smiled at him. Brimley had been master of the choristers since the mid-1530s, he was the last choir master of the uh, monastic cathedral. He'd retained his post in the intervening decades, like Talis and uh, Bird in their settings, and uh, some settings for parts of the Henrician liturgy uh, in English survive by him. But with the help of one of the minor canons, he cheerfully taught the boys to sing the Mass and the Latin offices during the rebellion. He too would, of course, explain this on a plea of compulsion. But that smile exchanged between the choirmaster and the ex-monk during the elevation of the host, the climax of a Mass at which the entire congregation had just been solemnly absolved from schism and reconciled to Rome, tells a quite different story. Men forced to participate in religious rites that are repugnant to them do not share the complicity of a smile. With the retreat of the earls from Durham on December the 17th came retribution, swift, savage and summary. The Queen wanted to know exactly who was to blame? Who were the principal persons that accompanied the Earls in their outrageous doings at Durham? What number of men were there at that time? How the townsmen allowed or misliked of their doings? Whether any resistance was made against them? And who were their counsellors and drawers on? The rank and file were not granted the luxury of a trial. 
Sussex told Cecil on December the 28th that he was en route to Durham to take order for such of the common people as shall be executed by martial law, amongst whom I mean to execute especially constables and other officers that have seduced the people to rebel, and such other as have been most busy to further these matters. So there shall be no town that hath sent some to the rebels or otherwise aided them, but some of the worst disposed shall be executed, for example. A week later, he sent Cecil a list of those hanged in County Durham. They included the Durham alderman, Master Strother, and 30 other citizens of the city, 40 constables from the county, 30 serving men of the meaner sort and worst disposition, his words, who'd been taken prisoner, countrymen, that is, villagers, appointed to be executed in every town where they dwell, 172. Of those who did leap over the wall at Barnard's Castle, 20. In total, 80 people were executed here in the city, 41 at Darlington, 20 at Barnard's Castle, and 172 through the other towns and villages of the county. He added that the like execution shall be done at Richmond, Allerton, Topcliffe and Thirsk for the North Riding, at Ripon, Boroughbridge, Weatherby and Tadcaster for the West Riding, and besides the executions in the larger towns, there shall be no town where any man went out of the town to serve the earls, but one man or more, as the bigness of the town is, shall be executed, for example, in the principal place of that town, so in the marketplace. By January the 4th, even Bishop Pilkington was stunned by the sheer scale of the carnage. He told Cecil, the country is in great misery, and as the sheriff writes, he can do no justice by any number of juries of such as be untouched in this rebellion. The number of offenders is so great that few innocent are left to try the guilty. Alongside the horror of the executions, the worst of the century, the spoiling of the country by royalist troops added to the misery. Sussex told Cecil on New Year's Day that his troops had seized all the lands, goods and cattle worth having between Newcastle and Doncaster and had ransacked the people in such miserable sort and made such open and common spoil as the like, I think, was never heard of, putting no difference between the good and the bad. By the 23rd of January, the Provost Marshal... George Bowes, had completed his bloody circuit through Durham, Richmond, Allerton, Cleveland, Ripon, and Weatherby for the sifting of these rebels by martial law, as he said. And he reported that he had hanged more than 600. So that now the authors of this rebellion is cursed on every side, and sure the people are in marvellous fear, so that I trust there shall never such thing happen in these parts again. It seemed time to call a halt to the slaughter. In early February, Sir Thomas Gargrave, a loyal member of the Council of the North, advised Cecil to confine further proceedings to some select number of the least and mean sort, and chiefly the Papists. And all the rest I would wish to be pardoned, except certain chosen people that be abroad. For in mine opinion, the poor husbandman and mean subject, if he be not a great Papist, will become a good subject. That left purely religious deviance to be dealt with. In Durham, 
Dean Whittingham seems to have exceeded his authority and have required the cathedral clergy and staff who'd relapsed into Catholicism to make a public recantation before they received communion at Easter at the end of March. Uh, it was beyond his remit because, of course, his authority was based on the cathedral statutes, which were Queen Mary's statutes, and they required the mass to be celebrated in the cathedral. Um, a point that was made to him by the diocesan, diocesan chancellor, Robert Swift. And Swift pursued errant clergy and parishioners through the consistory courts. They would all be forced to perform humiliating penance in sheets and confess to having, by special motion of the devil, madly meant to overthrow the knowledge of God among men and to bring horrible damnation upon ourselves and others. The altar stones and holy water stoops, resurrected in December, were ordered to be smashed into pieces under official supervision, though some were hastily reburied in dung hills and sand pits, or laid down as paving in church floors. At Sedgefield, a group of children followed Roland Hickson as he dragged the holy water stoop to a midden, where he hid it under a pile of straw. They reported that he had bade farewell to the stone in the words of the Latin liturgical greeting, which had briefly become familiar again in December 1569. Dominus Vobiscum, he had said. Papistry would, of course, remain a potent force in the North, and Catholic leaders and Elizabeth courtiers alike would continue to hope or to fear that the sympathies of both the Northern gentry and the meaner sort could be harnessed against a Protestant crown. To his dying day, or at any rate till the failure of the Armada, William Allen harboured the illusion that a Spanish force landing in the north of England would be welcomed with open arms and would trigger a universal repudiation of the Elizabethan church, and he schemed to bring about that happy outcome. But Bowes and Gargrave were right. The 1569 rebellion exposed a widespread northern nostalgia for Catholicism, and it briefly stirred thousands to resist a Protestantism which they perceived as an alien and oppressive import. But it also demonstrated that the residual Catholicism of the region lacked the leadership, focus and determination to stand against the regime. Only one priest was executed in the wake of the rebellion, a master Plumtree, an old Queen Mary priest, who, it was said, had mercy offered him in case he would go to church, which he refused to do. But to a man, the Durham clergy, who had all been reconciled to Rome, conformed once more to Elizabeth's church. Even Sir John Brown, the priest of Whitton Gilbert, who had resigned his living in penitence for his conformity, was serving a year later at Chesterley Street as curate there. Though admittedly he was in trouble with the diocesan courts for celebrating the communion with mass wafers. The theologians of Louvain might produce cogent theological justifications for rebellion just as radical as those that had emanated from Geneva in Queen Mary's reign, and Pius V might call on all good Catholics to reject the rule of the Protestant harlot's daughter. After 1570, Recusancy would demand of Catholics a tougher, more demanding commitment. 
But that call for an end to mere nostalgia and a vacation, if necessary, to loss of goods, imprisonment or death was one which few, stripped of the solidarity of a region, felt able to embrace. And time would efface even the horror that followed that brief month of defiance. There is no memorial to any of the dead of 1569 in the cathedral where their rebellion began. The only gravestone there that names one of the participants is silent about the tragic events in which he'd been involved. And it might even be mistaken as a testimony to tranquil continuities. Located in the centre of the floor of the Galilee Chapel is the grave slab of John Brimley, choir master from 1535 to 1576, the man who, during the rebellion, schooled the choristers in the words and music of the Mass, but who was evidently too good a musician to be dismissed for his part in his people's tragedy. The epitaph runs, John Brimley's body here doth lie, that praised God with hand and voice, by music's heavenly harmony, dull minds he bid in God rejoice. His soul into the heavens is lift, to praise him still that gave the gift. We must hope so.